0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Christian Studies. I'm your host, Zach McCulley, and today I'm joined by Dr. Michael Kruger. Dr. Kruger is the president of Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, as well as professor of New Testament. He's a leading scholar in biblical studies, studies on the canon of scripture in the New Testament, uh, but he's just authored a brand new book, maybe his first, in fact, for a lay audience titled Surviving Religion 101, Letters to a Christian Student on Keeping the Faith in College. It was published this year with Crossway, and it really is quite an important book, I think. Dr. Kruger, congratulations on the book, and thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Zach. Great to be with you, and I appreciate the note on the book. I'm I'm very excited about it. Well, it's a joy to have you here, and, and I'm looking forward to hearing from you about what you've written. I thought it was, it was a really well put together book, and it, and it really spearheads uh, several, several really critical topics that Christian students encounter in college. Some issues that a lot of Christians face elsewhere in our day, too, I'm sure. Uh, but before we get into the book, uh, maybe you can tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Yeah, uh, happy
1: to do that. As you already mentioned in the introduction, I'm at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte. I'm the president here, a New Testament professor. So uh, I've spent the last 20 years here uh, as a faculty member and focused my time in the world of the New Testament, particularly the origins of the New Testament and the formation of the biblical canon. Those tend to be the areas I write. So I'm much more on the academic side of things um in terms of my writing and research and and uh but as you noted also in the intro this is probably my first foray into popular level writing and and i really enjoyed it
0: very good Well, dr kruger uh, as as we turn now to your book uh why why did you feel the need to write this book and what all are you addressing in the book broadly speaking yeah,
1: so for those who end up getting the book, they'll get a chance to, to hear my, my larger story, but the story actually began in my own college experience years ago at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. I entered there as a college freshman. Uh, I was a believer, committed to Christ, um, figured I was ready to handle what was, ever, what was coming my way. Um, and I found myself in a religion class, actually an introduction to the New Testament, ironically, And uh, the professor was a person who was extremely eloquent and articulate and compelling and a very serious critic of the reliability of the New Testament, the reliability of the Bible. And uh, that professor's name was Bart Ehrman, which many, many people listening may know that name because he's written many bestsellers uh, critiquing and uh, and attacking the integrity of the Bible. So I ended up going on an intellectual journey to sort of keep my faith intact and to survive and by god's grace i ended up in the very career i'm in now as a biblical scholar but i wanted to write this book for people who faced similar situations like i do and i know that happens every year on the college campus a christian will find themselves in a religion class without answers to their questions in fact my own daughter is now at unc chapel hill as a sophomore and i know she's going to face the same things i've faced so the book was really written out of my own story, but also because she was in college too now. And I wanted to finally write the book I'd always wanted to write.
0: Very good. Well, I want to look at some of the challenges that you're preparing Christian students to face here in the book. And one of the big ones, it seems, is this issue of becoming intimidated by the intellect of professors. Can you talk to us about this issue of feeling like, like your professor is right in terms of perhaps a secular worldview by virtue of, of his or her learning? you know, when, when when they say Christianity is indefensible intellectually. And and, and also, what, what can Christian students do in response to this thinking?
1: Yeah, well, this is at the core of why it's hard to be a Christian on a college campus, because it seems like all the smartest people, which mainly are the professors, think that Christianity makes no sense and is not worth following. Now, of course, there's a small percentage of, of professors who are believers on each college campus, and we're grateful for them. But as a whole... I think everyone would agree that the secular campus is a place that doesn't necessarily attract many Bible-believing Christians on the faculty. So whether you're in a religion class or a sociology class or what have you, Christians are going to come across very intelligent, very well-trained, educated professors who think that their worldview makes no sense and that uh, it's not worth following. And that presents a little bit of a challenge, which is, wait a second here. Here I am, this 19-year-old kid, and I don't really know much about anything. And then I've got like the smartest people on the planet teaching me, and none of them Seem to be Christians. What's the chance that they're all wrong and I'm right? Um, that 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 issue. We don't reckon with that enough. Uh, that just the 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 pressure that puts on somebody, and and also just the the improbability that someone thinks like, why you know, why would I think that that they're all wrong and I'm right when I don't know anything? Um, and so in the in the chapter, I deal with that question. I talk about the importance of understanding the way worldviews work. You know, people don't believe what they believe just because of the facts. They believe what they believe because of their values and their system and their worldview, which often color the facts rather than um, are derived from the facts. And so if everybody's interpreting the world through their own grid, um, we wouldn't be surprised that non-Christians are going to interpret o- the world in a way that fits with their non-Christian worldview. And that explains a lot. Um, and I, you know, I just want Christian students to realize that Just because they're in the minority and just because a lot of their professors think otherwise doesn't mean their worldview is wrong. Um, You have to realize that people believe what they want to believe on one level and believe what their worldview dictates.
0: Well, you know, one thing that will inevitably come up in that introductory philosophy course in college is this problem of evil. When the professor asks, how can God allow such suffering in the world? And, you know, this can, this can really be a, a backbreaker if a student is unprepared. What's a Christian student to make of this question?
1: Well, this is a biggie. Um, maybe one of the biggest uh, challenges to the, to, the, to the Christian God that there is. Um, and Christians should know that this isn't the first time anyone's ever heard the objection. It's not the first time everyone's, anyone's ever brought up the problem of evil. Uh, a number of young Christians may not know that C.S. Lewis, who, of course, was once an atheist, um, actually uh, was converted to Christianity because of the problem of evil. Now, that may sound like a strange thing to say, because at first, when, when Lewis was an atheist, it was the problem of evil that was the reason he was an atheist. He looked around the world and saw how awful it was and how broken it was and how terrible it was and thought this, this is a good God could never be a part of this world, so he decided that atheism made the most sense. But then it dawned on Lewis, wait a second, if I say the world is is, is evil, then, then how do I know it's evil? What am I measuring it by? What standard am I appealing to in the universe to know that something's good or something's evil? And it dawned on Lewis that his very objection, namely that the universe was so evil, which he used as a reason for atheism, was actually a reason for theism. It was a reason to believe there must be a God that's the ultimate standard for good in order to explain the origins of good and evil in the first place. And so this is really where I would encourage Christians to go who are struggling with this issue. It's complicated, it's difficult. There's there's a lot of things that we'll we'll never resolve. But at the end of the day, it's not just Christians that have a an a duty to explain evil. The non-Christian also has to explain evil. And you'll find that the Christian has a much better explanation because at least in our system we have a god who can explain the origins of good evil, good and evil in the first place. So, trying to take it down to a more foundational level, I think is is a key move for for believers on the college campus.
0: And, you know, it's also true that as Christian students are confronted with, with the intellectual strengths of their, of their professors, many of whom reject theistic worldviews, they also will be coming in contact, many for the first time, or at least on this scale, with a variety of, of alternative views to Christianity. So how can the Christian student keep the faith in an environment that is heavily pluralistic?
1: Yeah, well, this is another key issue I deal with in the book, of course, and that is this issue of diversity. Um, and I don't mean uh, the diversity of, of, uh, of races or, or ethnicity, but uh, diversity of ideas and the diversity of religion. Um, in fact, I, I liken the college campus to kind of like the Amazon rainforest. And, and what I mean by that is it's a it's an amazingly complex and beautiful ecosystem with all kinds of creatures you didn't even know existed. And so when a college student who's a Christian steps on the campus, they're like, wow, I didn't know there was all these views. I didn't know there was all these philosophies, and I didn't know there was all these other ways of thinking. And, and then they realize, wait a second, and these other people seem very happy, and they seem to have a well-balanced life. And in some ways, their life may even seem better than my life. And so they start wondering, wait a second, how do I know, or why should I think Christianity is the only right religion? And then they quickly realize, on top of that, that people are like, well, you Christians are so arrogant and narrow-minded for thinking. So how could anybody ever think their religion's the right one? So there's a lot of answers to that question. But one primary thing I focused on was just uh, recognizing that the objection uh, that, that it's so arrogant to think your religion's the right one actually misunderstands the way Christians view religion. It actually assumes a non-Christian view of religion see the non-christian view of religion is that that religion is just humans trying to find find god humans trying to discover what god might be like and so it's humans working their way to god now if that's all that religion is just humans in their fallible flawed way trying to figure out god well then yeah christianity would be remarkably arrogant to assume that we're the only ones that got it right but that's not the christian claim we don't think our religion is that way at all in fact our religion is not us trying to figure out god or ourselves trying to find god but god finding us and what i mean by that is god proactively reveals himself to people and saves them. So it's not so much that we have to figure God out, quote unquote, but that God has revealed who he is and shared who he is and told us who he is. So all Christians are doing is simply believing what God has told them. Now, if that's arrogant, I don't know how that fits with any definition of arrogance I've ever seen. It's simple, you could argue it's even humble to receive what God has told you and to listen to it and to follow it. And so I think once you, once you shift the paradigm that way, it looks a lot different. It doesn't look so narrow-minded anymore. Now it looks actually
0: submissive to what God has said. And, you know, it's, it's often the case that as as we think about a pluralistic environment that, that Christians can sometimes be labeled uh, bigots as hateful, as intolerant, um, that over, over the fact that they may call homosexuality sinful, that they, would believe in an inter- in in hell and an a, an eternal punishment for for all who wouldn't uh, repent of sin and fall upon Christ. How does the Christian student respond to these things? Uh, is is the solution that they ought to be more loving, more accepting?
1: Yeah. So this is also related to the to this issue of diversity. So one of the things is this diversity of moral claims. Um, And Christians are obviously making moral claims and not just about sexuality, about many things that our world finds uh, very troubling. Uh, And so they will say, you Christians, you know, are really awful people for believing these things. In some ways, I would say the strategy here for for Christian college students is similar to how we dealt with the problem of evil. And that is to recognize that as soon as non-Christians call Christians bigoted, narrow-minded, hateful, that all implies uh, that they're making moral claims. They're moral, making moral claims about what counts as hate and that things that they deem hateful are wrong. And they're they're, they're things that are morally uh, offensive and, and don't live up to some standard of right and wrong in the universe. And at that point, you just simply want to ask the question, well, where do you get the standard from? How do you know what it is? And how does that fit with your worldview? In other words... It's not just the Christian making moral claims, it's the non-Christian making moral claims. And actually today, ironically in our culture, the non-Christians are making very loud, aggressive moral claims, maybe even more than any prior generation has seen. And I think that just needs to be pointed out. If they're gonna make those moral claims, they need to have a, a worldview that backs them up, meaning they have to have some way to know what's right and wrong. It can't just be their own private opinion. If it's their own private opinion, then that's the worst kind of dogmatism, to assume that your opinion should rule everybody else, Surely that's not what the non-Christian is doing. He isn't suggesting that his opinion should rule everyone else. He must be claiming some higher authority. And we need to know what that higher authority actually is. So this, again, points out that it's really a battle of worldviews uh, to compare these two things.
0: Yeah, I think that's really good. Well, put. well you, you mentioned in your chapter on, on suffering that the existence of a good God is the only foundation for distinguishing good from evil, right from wrong. And, you know, the existence of God is also the only foundation for understanding the physical world around us, too. Um, you mentioned that your daughter wants to study medicine and, and she'll be confronted largely with ideas that, at least in how they're presented in a, in a secular culture, uh, contradict Christianity. So how uh, Christians think about the sciences in college? Is, is there a real contradiction between the two, between science and Christianity?
1: Well, this will certainly be another layer of challenge for the average Christian student. Um, the sciences make a lot of claims about history and about the origins of the universe and about the way the world works. And of course, most modern science feels completely comfortable explaining everything in the world without God and that God is not necessary. In fact, we, we could explain everything in our universe apart from any sort of divine being. Moreover, many non-Christians will say that what you read in the Bible contradicts science. So you've got to reject the Bible because it goes right up against the, the, the sure results of modern science. Now, that whole scenario has a number of, of problems with it, though. And, I, and, and, you know, in the book, I point out a number of these. What, one problem is that science doesn't work the way most people think. Most people think that science is, is putting on the white lab coat and just collecting facts and data and then reaching conclusions, and that if you're a scientist, that the conclusions you reach must be reliable, they must be uh, conclusive. But in fact, science doesn't work that way at all. In fact, I, I cite the work of Thomas Kuhn, a, a well-known uh, philosopher of science who wrote a very book, very famous book years ago called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, and he argues that science doesn't work in a linear fashion, it works in a cyclical fashion. And what he means by this is that scientists collect the evidence and interpret the evidence through an existing paradigm or an existing hypothesis. And actually, the evidence doesn't have to actually fit the hypothesis. Uh, The hypothesis rather sort of shapes the evidence around it, so that scientists aren't as neutral as you think they are. They're not as objective. In fact, they're they're collating and collecting evidence in light of an existing system, and often the system sort of presses and forces the evidence to conform. Um, And so, science can, just to put it bluntly, can be wrong. Um, It can reach wrong conclusions. Um, and it's only when the evidence becomes so overwhelming that there's a there's a scientific revolution and then things change. And so Kuhn's point is primarily scientists aren't neutral and biased people in white lab coats that, that, that their, their conclusions aren't as, aren't as certain as, as they make out. That's one thing to point out. Second thing to point out is that the Bible is not anti-science. And by that, I mean, God made the world. Christians have every reason to be good scientists, every reason is to investigate the world and to explore the world um, and to think that there's uh, good that can be done in the scientific method. Um, Now, that doesn't mean that Christians have to adopt every scientific conclusion in the modern world, but we are pro-science, pro-scientific method, and believe that God has given us a a very good reason to study the natural world because he made it. So I really work hard in the book to to help people realize there should not be a war between true science and the Bible. Uh, Since God is the author of both, they should fit together.
0: Yeah, I think that's really helpful. And I appreciate in this chapter how, how you include sections on distinguishing fact from theory. And also you 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 talk about a, a long heritage of Christians in science who have, have been really successful in scientific fields.
1: And yeah, so I guess
0: Yeah. Yeah, ahead. I was just gonna add to that that that
1: that people forget that science, modern science, was born out of the work of many solid Bible believing Christians historically. Um, and I'll point out in that chapter that, that, and this is a little bit further down the road for some people that they've never thought about before, but that Christianity actually provides a worldview in which science makes sense. Uh, people don't realize that doing science, you, you have to have certain philosophical assumptions to do science. Uh, and those philosophical assumptions are not themselves provided by science. So what that means is that science doesn't just operate on any view of the world. You have to have a particular kind of world for science to work. And I argue the case that actually Christianity provides that kind of world. Um, it provides a worldview where science makes sense and can function and, and is meaningful. Uh, and ironically, atheism, as a, as a as a counterpoint, does not provide that kind of foundation. So rather than being anti-science, Christianity—and this is an irony people just need to reckon with—may just be the the very soil that allows science to prosper and grow. And historically, I think that's borne out. Uh, science has grown most aptly in 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 the modern. Uh, sort of Western world in a way that is, I think, very much dictated by the, the influence of Christianity.
0: Yeah, I think that's well said. And, you know, I guess sticking with, with the stream of issues related to the naturalistic philosophy that students are encountering in, in universities and within science departments, you also have this chapter here discussing miracles. So so what ought the Christian student do who who begins to doubt the validity of miracles in the Bible on the basis that they haven't seen one in person themselves is, th- this is probably a common line of thinking, but is it a good one?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, if you're a, if you're scientifically minded, you're you live in a world of observation and, and and experimentation. So the average secular scientist will reject miracles, and they'll reject miracles because they've never seen a miracle. And so the argument is basically miracles are impossible because I've never uh, witnessed a miracle uh, myself, but. You know, that, that's a that's a pretty problematic argument um, at the end of the day. And it's problematic. And philosophers have pointed out the weakness of it, um, because basically not seeing something yourself doesn't mean something's impossible. Um, there, there's many cultures around the world that may have not have seen certain things, but they don't declare them impossible just simply because they've not personally witnessed them. If I went to certain places in the Amazon rainforest to certain tribes there and told them that there's this thing called snow that exists, white flakes falling from the sky they would probably think you're you're making stuff up we've never seen snow what if their reaction was well snow is impossible because we've never seen it obviously that's a very poor argument so what you quickly realize about the argument against miracles from most secularists is it tends to be circular they say miracles are impossible and then you ask them how they know that and they say because they haven't seen one and then when you say what about all the thousands of people that claim to see one they answer well all of them are wrong every single one of those people is wrong and then you ask well how do you know they're all wrong and the answer is, well, because miracles are impossible. And you realize it's just a it's just a circular argument. Um, I'll add to that also that the, the, the argument tends to have a, a lot more hubris to it than people realize. Imagine going to all these people around the world who claimed to see miracles and saying, I'm just here to inform you, all of you, every single one of you, all of you are wrong. Now, you know, you often hear from the secular world that it's Christians that make dogmatic claims like that, that Christians are narrow-minded telling everyone else they're wrong. But here's an instance where the secularist is doing it he's quite certain that everybody out there other than himself is wrong about miracles. Um, And I think that, that needs to be uh, seen for what it is. It's a pretty dogmatic claim.
0: I think it is. And you know, a lot of this, it, it it does eventually all come down to scripture and, and there may be no struggle greater for the Christian student entering college than contending for the reliability and the authority of the Bible. Um, You know, these criticisms really well, and you include a set of five of them in, in subsequent chapters near the end of the book. And I want to get to each of these really quickly. So I'll, I'll summarize the question you ask in the, in the particular chapter, and then maybe you can give us like a one, two minute uh, answer of how you respond to, to some of these objections that, that Christian students face regarding the Bible. Um, the first one you have uh, in the chapter is, is, how do you know the Bible is really from God? Yeah, well, this is the,
1: the first and most important question, right? Um, because everything in the Christian beliefs is hinged on the, on the belief that the Bible is from God. So how do we know that? Um, well, the, one of the things I point out right out of the gate is you have to realize that as soon as you ask how to recognize God's voice, you're, you're already asking a spiritual question. It's a question that, rego- that, that pertains to spiritual matters. So there's you, you can't argue that you can answer it in sort of purely secular terms. The Christians never claim that. Christians claim that that, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, People who, who, who know God and are saved by God and have the spirit living inside them can rightly recognize the voice of God. You rightly recognize the voice of God like you recognize anybody's voice from the characteristics and attributes of that voice. Um, and so I make the argument that Christians for generations have believed that the Bible can be uh, recognized as God's word from the Bible itself, that it's in a sense self-authenticating. And what I mean by that is it has certain attributes and qualities that show that it's divine. Um, Now, people obviously will will balk at that and say, well, that sounds mighty subjective. Um, But actually, there's a lot of objective things to recognize about that. One is you have the objective testimony of the history of the church rallying around these books and, and saying as a unity that they recognize God's voice in them. That counts for something. And then secondly, the attributes of the books themselves are objective. You know, we think there's a remarkable amount of unity in these books, for example, that shows that they really tie together in ways that we think no human author could create. So as a whole, then, I think you have to recognize that that we know books are from God, uh, from God, and he does this by the testimony of his Holy Spirit to us as we see the qualities of God in these books.
0: Great. Well, the second question you have is, is about the Gospels. Do the Gospels contradict themselves?
1: Well, this is a big claim. This happens to be the claim I heard a lot of when I was in a religion class, and I know that students today still hear that. It's one of the most common claims, which is, you know, the Gospels disagree and they contradict themselves. And oftentimes students will hear this from their fellow students. Well, certainly if they hear this from their fellow students, I always encourage uh, someone to ask a follow-up question, which is, share, share with me the, the one contradiction you've studied and, and struggled to resolve, and I'll try to help you see if we can resolve it. The reason that's a good question is because most people have not actually studied a single contradiction. They just hear that there's contradictions and then like to repeat the claim. And they actually also reveals they've never taken any time to actually study them and see if they're resolvable. And here's where we lead to the answer. I think people realize that what looks like contradictions often quickly evaporate upon closer scrutiny. You realize that, wait a second, maybe it looked like there was a contradiction, but you know once you study the text more fully and see what's going on, you realize that it's not a contradiction at all. The other thing I wanna point out about supposed contradictions in the gospels is that you have to remember that these, these are ancient documents that don't necessarily write history like we necessarily would in the modern day. So in the modern day for example we think we always tell a story in chronological order or always quote people exactly in the ancient world you wouldn't necessarily do that for lots of reasons you may tell a story thematically and not chronologically and you may paraphrase or summarize someone's statement rather than quoting them exactly and once you take into account those differences between ancient historiography and modern historiography then a lot of those evaporate or a lot of those contradictions evaporate away
0: yeah that's great well, the third question you have is: Is did, did scribes change the words of the scriptural text, and 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 if they did, doesn't that make make the text not reliable?
1: Yeah. So this is an argument I also heard in college, and it's still very alive today. Uh, in fact, one of Bart Ehrman's most famous books is a book called "Misquoting Jesus," where he argues that scribes did change the words of the Bible so fundamentally that we cannot have any real assurance what the Bible says. Now, I I obviously push back on that. In fact. Um, I'm not the only one that historically has pushed back on that because there's tremendous evidence for the reliability of the New Testament text. We're left with a very high number of manuscripts, many of which are early, that attest the text at a very early stage. And it's just extremely unlikely that the text could have been changed so dramatically that it wouldn't have left any traces in in the textual record. And so when we compare all the different manuscripts, we see that, look, there's a very stable, reliable text that's been passed down for generations. Are there variations? Of course there are. In fact, there's thousands of them, Um, but that's actually pretty normal in the ancient world. Um, If you're gonna copy a book as many times as the New Testament has been copied, there's gonna be natural, normal scribal mistakes, most of which are inconsequential for understanding the meaning of the text. Most scribal mistakes are actually spelling errors. Um, And so once you take on all that into account, you realize that the text is actually quite reliable and we don't have to, to fear that it's been changed irreparably.
0: Well, a fourth question that gets asked is, is how do we even know we have the right books in the Bible in the first place?
1: Yeah, I, I enjoyed this this chapter because it actually gets to the heart of a lot of my own research on the academic side of the spectrum, um, and it's right. a common objection that students will hear. You know, what about the Gospel of Thomas? What about lost books? How do we know one of these other apocryphal gospels that shouldn't be included in our Bibles? So I I basically tell the story of the origins of the New Testament canon in this chapter and remind people, actually, we have good reasons to trust that these books are the right books. And just one thing I point out among many things in that chapter is that the canon actually formed a lot earlier than people realize. Uh, Yes, it did take till probably the fourth century to get all the boundaries solidified and all the margins stabilized. But there was a core canon. And by core, I mean something like 22 out of 27 books in place rather early. In fact, by the middle of the second century, and certainly by the end of the second century, you can see about those 22 out of 27 books well-established and widely used. If so, then actually that shows there's quite a bit of stability to the New Testament canon. Christians were not in disarray and confusion like people make out about which books to read, but you can see from from a very early stage, they seem to have known which books uh, to include and which books to trust.
0: Well, a fifth question that that you present in in the next chapter is how can the Bible be from God if it advocates things like oppression? Does, does the Bible advocate things that are, that are morally wrong?
1: Well, one of the things that's been fascinating in the, in the the last few generations, particularly the most recent one is, is the moral argument against the Bible. And it's, it's, this is, this is relatively new and and I don't mean absolutely new, but in terms of its frequency, you know, in years gone by, people would be rather sheepish to make a moral argument against the Bible. They would just, you know, instead say, hey, you know, keep your morals to yourself. But now people are actually objecting to the Bible on moral grounds. They're actually saying the Bible is immoral. And if the Bible is immoral, then it ought to be rejected uh, based on a moral argument. Well, as you can imagine, there's several problems with this whole approach. One is I already pointed out earlier in our discussion is if you're going to make moral claims against the Bible, you better have a worldview that can give you moral norms give you a place to stand. And again, that's the very thing that, that most non-Christian worldviews don't have. But then on top of that, I go through this, this chapter and, and deal with particular claims. You know, One example is this issue of genocide. Does, is God guilty of genocide when, when, when you look at the Canaanite conquest? And of course, I can't fully dive into that issue here, but I, I argue that, that when you understand the, the fuller historical scenario and the larger theological rationale of the way God judges people for their sins, that it's not at all genocide, um, but rather God doing what what he said he'll do, which is to judge people for their wicked behavior. And that God does that in lots of ways. Sometimes he does it through natural disasters. Sometimes he does it through human armies. Sometimes
0: he does it through disease and
1: illness, um, but he does it in lots of ways. And that's his prerogative as, as, as the God of the universe.
0: I think that's really well said. And I'm glad we got to go through through each of those, because I think those are really important chapters for, for the book. Um, and so, Dr. Kruger, uh, y- you in the book talking about uh, what to do when you're a Christian college student or, or a, college, a, a Christian student in college and you're you're feeling weak. Uh, you're feeling like you have doubt, and the whole Christian religion thing just isn't working. What do you students do in this predicament? Um, uh, what does what does this all really matter in the end uh, and and what's the danger, the urgency of of keeping keeping the faith in college?
1: Yeah, I have several pieces of advice there for students struggling with doubt. Uh, you know number one, I, I remind them that you're not alone. Uh, it's not like something strange is happening to you almost every christian has a phase of doubt in their life almost every believer struggles with with faith at some point in their life so doubt is very normal um and not to be you not know, to feel shame over it the second thing though uh closely related to that is even though doubt is common and normal it doesn't mean you just let it sit there um left unchecked it could be a real problem and you do address that doubt um and, and and tackle those doubts as best as you're able how do you do that well i lay out a, a, a sort of prescription on, on how to do it. I, I won't repeat it all here, but just a couple things I mentioned. One is uh, I encourage people to doubt their doubts. Um, this is something we don't normally think of. Whenever you doubt the Christian faith, people don't realize you're, you're actually considering some other belief as more plausible than your Christian belief. Uh, but what I encourage people to do is, well, you should also subject that new belief to scrutiny and you should subject that new belief to doubt. So if you have a new belief replacing your old belief, well, have you doubted that new belief? Have you critiqued it? Have you subjected it to scrutiny? I think if you if you do that, you realize it falls apart pretty quickly once you do. And so doubting your doubts is, is a good way to fight back. The other thing I do is I give what I call my horror movie advice. And this is sort of a funny part of the book. My horror movie advice for people who struggle with doubts is to don't make the mistake of what, what every character in a horror movie does. They go off by themselves in the dark. This is what everyone does in a horror movie that's like rule number one, don't do. Don't go anywhere alone. And certainly don't go away alone in the dark. Well, if you take horror movie advice and you apply it to doubt, it's the same lesson, right? Don't go alone and don't go it alone and don't go alone in the dark, but, but stand in the light. In other words, bring out your doubts into the light, talk with them, talk with your friends about them, be in community. Don't walk alone in this, have people stand beside you, pray with you and walk through it with you. Um, And that's, that's going to play a
0: big role in getting you through your phase of doubt. Very good. Well, Dr. Kruger, I'm, I'm thankful that you wrote the book. It's it's sharp and succinct and the personal touch written as addresses to your daughter going to college, I think really orients the book well. I think it speaks to the reality of the importance of discipleship in the home and, and the local church too. theological education in the home and the church. Um, it's it's really good. It's a it's a really important book, I think. Uh, before we wrap up, though, uh, why don't you tell us what writing projects you plan to work on next? Yeah,
1: well, (laughs) too many, really. Uh, I've always got stuff in the hopper that I'm way behind on. Um, I've actually got a book coming out uh, this year on uh, leadership, Um, but it's actually, uh, and this is a strange thing, but it's a concern I've had in the church for a while. It's, It's a book not about good leadership, but bad leadership. It's about how to avoid bad leaders. And so I tackle this very tricky problem of spiritual abuse in the church. Uh, Which is this this whole trend of bully pastors in the church, which is becoming more and more common, sadly, in the evangelical world. And so as a seminary president, I want to help our students navigate that uh, and avoid that pitfall and also to avoid churches that that, uh, you know, uh, allow bully pastors to do things they shouldn't do. So, yeah, that's a that's a book on leadership that I've got coming out, probably going to be wrapping it up within the calendar year. And then I've got a, a, back to my my main area of research, I've got a a book on miniature codices I'm working on. I know that's strange to your audience. You're like, what's a miniature codex? But in the ancient world of books, which is where I do most of my research, uh, people may not realize that there were miniature books in the ancient world, just like in the modern world. And in the fourth, fifth centuries of early Christianity, they were quite popular. So I have a a forthcoming academic monograph on miniature codices and and how they function within the early Christian movement.
0: Very good. Well, those both sound like, different and also important books. Um, but for now, this this one is out uh, here with Crossway in 2021. It's called Surviving Religion 101, Letters to a Christian Student on Keeping the Faith in College. Dr. Kruger, Kruger, thank you for writing this book. And thank you again for joining me today. Thank you so much. It was great to be with you. And thank you all for listening. I'll see you next time on New Books in Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network.